Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 7 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is Episode 7-16, Kosovo and Milosevic. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Yugoslavia's 1974 constitution gave the Serbian province of Kosovo a high degree of autonomy. During his rise to power in the late 80s, Slobodan Milosevic strips Kosovo of its autonomy. The ethnic Albanians of Kosovo peacefully resist Milosevic's repressive measures. In 1995, Dayton Peace Accords ends the war in Bosnia, but Milosevic is still in power in Serbia. And with that, let's discuss the Kosovo War of 1999. Part 4. The Kosovo Crisis The Federal Republic of Yugoslavia After the Dayton and Paris peace agreements, the rump state of Yugoslavia changed its name. The remaining states, Serbia, Montenegro, Vojvodina, and Kosovo, were now part of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Slobodan Milosevic remained president and leader of this new Yugoslavia. He continued to play the role of statesman and relished the idea that he was a peacemaker based on his participation in the Dayton peace accords. However, his reign had brought a dark cloud over Serbia and the Serbian people. Most of the world blamed him for the carnage and devastation during the Balkan Wars. Like Radovan Karadzic and Ratko Mladic, most of the world considered Slobodan Milosevic a war criminal. But he was needed to secure the peace in Bosnia, so he was not indicted like the other two. That being said, Yugoslavia remained under sanctions even after the Dayton Peace Agreement went into effect. Greater Albania We discussed Kosovo's strained relationship with Serbia in previous episodes. In episode 7 of this series, we mentioned how the Serb minority in Kosovo claimed to be oppressed by the ethnic Albanian majority. And in episode 8, we mentioned how Slobodan Milosevic used this unrest in Kosovo to bolster his career and justify his turn towards nationalism. We also discussed how U.S. Senators Bob Dole and Don Nichols visited Kosovo in 1990. When they returned to the states, they expressed concern over the treatment of the Kosovars and drafted legislation to cut foreign aid to Yugoslavia. Around that same time, U.S. Ambassador to Yugoslavia, Warren Zimmerman, was also vocal about Serbia's treatment of the Kosovars. These concerns were not unfounded. As Serbian nationalism grew in the late 80s and early 90s, Serbia passed legislation restricting freedom in Kosovo. These laws walked back the autonomy granted in the 1974 Constitution. This meant Kosovo would be ruled directly by the Serbian government in Belgrade. The Serbian government also prohibited the display of Albanian symbols and flags in Kosovo, restricted the use of the Albanian language in Kosovo, transferred Kosovo's security and policing matters to Serbia, and replaced Kosovo's politicians with ethnic Serbs. 
Kosovo was in a unique position, very different from either Bosnia or Croatia. Bosnia and Croatia were both separate states from Serbia. When they seceded, they were seceding from Yugoslavia, not Serbia. Their problems stemmed from the large Serb minorities living within their borders. Before Milosevic, Kosovo was an autonomous province with a lot of independence. But it was still part of Serbia. And it held tremendous historical, religious, and cultural significance for the Serbian people. Kosovo had been the center of the Serbian Orthodox Church for centuries. It was also the location of the Battle of Kosovo in 1389, which we discussed in Episode 2 of this series. Despite this significance, Kosovo's population was overwhelmingly ethnic Albanian. Kosovo's Serb population was barely 10%. The rest, almost 90%, was ethnic Albanian. To put it simply, 200,000 Serbs ruled over 2 million Albanians. The wars in Croatia and Bosnia during the 1990s did not really affect Kosovo. Kosovo saw very little, if any, fighting related to those conflicts. But the wars did strengthen their desire to seek independence from Serbia and become part of a greater Albania. They had seen how Slobodan Milosevic supported the Serbs in Bosnia and Croatia and wanted no part of that. Even after the Dayton Peace Accords, the Albanian Kosovars were concerned about their fate in this new, weakened Serbia. The Kosovo Liberation Army, or the KLA, was formed in 1991. Its main purpose was to fight against Serb aggression, especially as Milosevic ramped up his nationalist rhetoric. As Yugoslavia disintegrated in the early 90s, Serbia grew desperate to hold on to as much as possible. The Serbian government began cracking down on the Kosovo independence movement. This crackdown justified the existence of the KLA. Slobodan's popularity tumbles. Parliamentary elections were held in Serbia in November 1996. Slobodan Milosevic was not running in the election, but he needed his political coalition to win big. Serbia's constitution limited the president to two terms, and Milosevic's second term expired the next year. But if his party controlled the legislature, they could amend the constitution to extend his tenure as president. When the election results came in, Milosevic's party won a majority, but not the two-thirds required to change the constitution. This led to a runoff vote two weeks later. The opposition coalition won the runoff, but Serbia's election commission refused to accept the results. The election commission was controlled by Milosevic. This sparked large protests throughout Serbia, including Belgrade. Milosevic decided to play the Kosovo card and accused the opposition of being connected to Kosovo separatists. He knew the one thing Serbia's people would rally around was the denial of Kosovo's independence. On January 16, 1997, an explosion went off in Pristina, the capital of Kosovo. An ethnic Serb university professor and his driver were injured, but no one was killed. Never one to waste a good crisis, Milosevic promised to crack down on the separatists. 
Over the next several days, dozens of people were arrested in Kosovo. At least one of these prisoners died while in police custody, a victim of torture and abuse. The government finally accepted the election results in February 1997. But the election results and subsequent unrest underscored Milosevic's fall in popularity. The Albanian Civil War Throughout the first half of 1997, the KLA targeted Serbian government buildings and ethnic Albanians who supported Serbian rule. But things really escalated with the outbreak of the Albanian Civil War. Albania had been a communist nation for 48 years, from 1944 to 1992. During this period, Albania's authoritarian communist regime stifled political, religious, and intellectual expression. Albania's communist ruler, Enver Hoxha, patterned himself after Joseph Stalin and ruled the country through fear and repression. Muslim scholars were persecuted, mosques were destroyed, Friday congregational prayer was banned, and possessing the Qur'an was illegal. In 1967, Enver Hoxha proudly declared that Albania was the world's only atheist state. Owning property was also restricted in communist Albania. The government seized most of the land, home, and businesses in the nation. When communism finally ended in Albania in 1992, it was the poorest nation in Europe. But after living under such a despotic system for so long, the Albanian people were not used to having money and property of their own. Mesmerized by this new freedom, Albanians were enticed by the idea that capitalism could make them instantly rich. This allowed unscrupulous politicians, entrepreneurs, and criminals to take advantage of their naivete. Various Ponzi schemes were introduced into Albania, and its people were encouraged to invest in them. It may seem strange that Ponzi schemes could lead to civil war and the breakdown of society. But that's exactly what happened in Albania. These schemes permeated the entire society. From the poorest Albanian peasant to the highest-ranking members of the military and political bureaucracy, just about everyone was putting their money into these Ponzi schemes in the hopes of a big future payoff. To get an idea of just how bad this was, the International Monetary Fund estimated that 50% of Albania's GDP from 1996 to 1997 was wrapped up in Ponzi schemes. That means half of the country's wealth was invested in these worthless scams. The whole thing came tumbling down in 1997. Overnight, the country was nearly bankrupt and could not pay its employees nor provide basic services. Before long, Albania was gripped by unrest and rioting as the government lost control. And then, fighting broke out between the government and its opposition. Since they weren't getting paid, the police and the military abandoned their posts. The abandoned military bases were looted and weapons became widely available across Albania. Albania's civil war lasted about six months, resulting in the deaths of over 3,000 people. The War in Kosovo 
There has been speculation that the January explosion in Pristina was orchestrated by Serbian operatives. Whether that was true or not, the Kosovo separatist movement was mostly nonviolent. For most of 1997, ethnic Albanians resisted Serbia's repression by boycotting Serbian government institutions and creating a parallel shadow government in Kosovo. We discussed this in episode 8 of this series. Ibrahim Rugova was the leader of LDK, the Democratic League of Kosovo. Under his guidance, Kosovo's shadow government attempted to establish its own schools, medical facilities, and utilities with varying degrees of success. Ibrahim Rugova advocated peaceful, passive resistance, wanting to avoid the violence that took place in Bosnia. And for many years, his philosophy was widely adopted in Kosovo. But things began to change towards the end of 1997. Many of those weapons looted during the Albanian Civil War made their way across the border into Kosovo into the hands of the KLA. On November 26, 1997, a firefight broke out between Kosovo security forces and the KLA. During this battle, an Albanian teacher named Halid Gechi was killed. Over a hundred thousand people attended Halid Gechi's funeral two days later. At his funeral, three masked armed KLA militants made an appearance. For many Kosovars, this was their first introduction to the mysterious KLA. Soon afterwards, Kosovo Serbs began forming their own militias. Their stated purpose was to defend Serbs and Serbia from the KLA. But the Serb militias also attacked Kosovo civilians and politicians they suspected of supporting the KLA. In early 1998, the Yugoslav military, which was primarily Serb by now, began attacking the KLA. Using helicopters, tanks, and armored vehicles, they launched their first official operation against the KLA in March 1998. At least 50 Albanians were killed and several thousand displaced. This was just the beginning. The Yugoslav military continued its violent campaign against Kosovo. They attacked KLA bases and strongholds, killed thousands of Albanian Kosovars, and created over a million ethnic Albanian refugees. The world looked on nervously as the violence in Kosovo escalated. The United States demanded the Europeans do something about the situation. The Europeans demanded Milosevic negotiate with Kosovo moderates and grant them autonomy. But Slobodan Milosevic was doing whatever he could to stay in power. There was talk about charging him with war crimes for his role in the Balkan Wars. But so long as he was president of Serbia, he did not have to worry about that. As the violence in Kosovo increased, the contact group, with the exception of Russia, placed additional sanctions on Serbia in May 1998. Meanwhile, the KLA took on a new tactic and began kidnapping Serbian police officers and high-ranking officials in Kosovo. It is interesting to note that had this conflict occurred three years later, the KLA would likely have been branded terrorists. After the 9-11 attacks, just about every Muslim resistance group, separatist movement, or militant organization not aligned with the West were considered terrorists. 
Yugoslavia would have been free to crush the KLA and do as they pleased with Kosovo. But it was 1998 and things were different. The world was exhausted with all the fighting in the Balkans. In all of the wars and fighting that took place since 1991, there was always one common denominator, the Serbs. The international community blamed the Serbs for the atrocities in Bosnia and did not want to see them repeated in Kosovo. And the way things were going in Kosovo in 1998, it certainly appeared headed towards more ethnic cleansing. On May 30, 1998, President Bill Clinton met with Ibrahim Rugova. During this meeting, Clinton made it clear the world stood with Kosovo and would not let another Bosnia happen. While the West made threats and promises, the Serbian military continued to brutalize Kosovo. Tens of thousands of Kosovo refugees fled to neighboring countries such as Montenegro, Albania, and even Serbia. Meanwhile, more and more ethnic Albanians were abandoning Ibrahim Rugova's peaceful resistance movement and siding with the KLA. The KLA had gone from a small, insignificant group to the fastest-growing militant organization in the world. In addition to the support they enjoyed at home, expatriate Albanians and Kosovars were also supporting the KLA. Albanians working and living in North America and Europe raised money and sent it back home to support the resistance. This money flowed back into rural Kosovo to buy arms and supplies for the KLA. Back in Serbia, there was growing resentment towards Slobodan Milosevic. Serbian parents could not understand why their sons were being sent hundreds of miles away to fight in the backwaters of Kosovo. That June, the members of NATO met in Brussels to discuss the worsening situation in Kosovo. Greece and Macedonia made it clear they were opposed to airstrikes. However, feelings were different in the United States. Senator Bob Dole, who had lost his presidential bid to Bill Clinton, continued to advocate for Kosovo. He urged President Clinton to take the lead and stop Milosevic before Kosovo turned into another Bosnia. Senator Dole advised NATO to give Milosevic an ultimatum, launch airstrikes if he did not abide by that ultimatum, and then slap him with more sanctions. But the situation in Kosovo was not that cut and dry. Kosovo was not an independent nation and was still a part of Serbia. During the Bosnian War, the Bosnian government asked for help from the international community and NATO. The KLA was not a government and most Western nations did not want to work with them. For these reasons, the Clinton administration continued to push for peace through diplomacy. The American president urged Milosevic to deal with Ibrahim Rugova before all of Kosovo sided with the KLA. Sobodan Milosevic promised his troops were only attacking KLA militants. But in reality, the Yugoslav army and Serbian police had become brutally systematic in its war against Kosovo. The army went from village to village, fighting the KLA and destroying nearly everything in the process. Entire villages were destroyed, creating hundreds of refugees every single day. By late August 1998, the KLA was losing ground and there were rumors they were ready to negotiate. The fighting continued until mid-October when Richard Holbrook met with Slobodan Milosevic. 
With the threat of NATO airstrikes, Holbrook negotiated a ceasefire and convinced Milosevic to pull back his military. This ceasefire held for nearly two months. During this period, the Clinton administration advised Milosevic to reinstate Kosovo's autonomous status. Kosovo would be self-ruled, but still technically a part of Serbia. Serbia rejected this proposal. Serbia countered with an offer that provided some autonomy for Kosovo. The Kosovars rejected that proposal. By Christmas 1998, no deal had been reached and the ceasefire was all but over. As the year ended, fighting broke out again in Kosovo. Over 30 KLA militants were killed by Serbian forces. An ethnic Serb mayor of a Kosovo town just outside Pristina was killed. The Serbian government blamed the KLA. Daily clashes between the KLA and Serbian military continued throughout the month and into the new year. Everything changed on January 15, 1999. Rachak is a small village in the hills of central Kosovo. The Serbian military claimed to have received intelligence that the KLA operated near this village. Serbian forces invaded Rachak and forced several ethnic Albanian Kosovars into the wooded hills behind the village. And then they opened fire. Forty-five people were killed in an instant. Word spread quickly and within a day, international investigators and journalists descended on the small village. Milosevic defended his soldiers, stating they only killed KLA militants. But the cameras were there, and the whole world saw the carnage. Videos of dead bodies, some of them women and children, were beamed across the planet. The world was angry and in shock. It was like Bosnia all over again. President Bill Clinton swung into action. While the Serbs were killing helpless Albanian villagers in Rachak, the U.S. House of Representatives was presenting its case in the president's impeachment trial. The sordid details that led to Bill Clinton's impeachment are outside the scope of this story, so we will only briefly discuss the circumstances. The American president began an extramarital affair with a White House intern a few months after the Dayton Accords in 1995. The following year, Clinton stated in a sworn affidavit involving a completely different extramarital affair that he did not have any relationship with that intern. The intern told one of her co-workers about the affair, not knowing her co-worker hated the president. The co-worker taped some of these conversations and turned them over to the FBI. Impeachment proceedings began when it was discovered the president had lied under oath about his relationship with the intern. Some accused the president of wagging the dog. This accusation referred to a 1997 movie called Wag the Dog, where a fictional president fabricated a war in Albania to distract the public from his scandals. Whatever his reasoning, President Clinton was determined to prevent a repeat of Bosnia. With the world angry about the Rachak massacre, U.S. diplomats scrambled to negotiate a peace settlement between Serbia and Kosovo. France and Britain, perhaps still embarrassed by their collective failures in Bosnia, were also eager to find an immediate solution. In late January 1999, 
NATO announced a summit at a historic French castle called Chateau Rambouillet, about 30 miles outside Paris. Albanian, Kosovar, Yugoslav, and NATO representatives would meet to hammer out a peace settlement. Even though he was president of Yugoslavia, Slobodan Milosevic did not attend. There was a lot more talk about war crimes now, and he was worried about getting arrested. The Rambouye Conference, as it was called, began on February 6, 1999. Within two weeks, the KLA and Ibrahim Rugova had agreed to a charter proposed by NATO and the United States. The terms of this agreement were very similar to the Dayton Accords. Kosovo would remain a part of Serbia, but it would be autonomous and independent in all but name. Yugoslavia rejected many terms of the charter and refused to sign off. But there was no more negotiating. NATO declared that it was a take-it-or-leave-it offer. And since he did not have any suitable counter-offers, NATO gave Milosevic an ultimatum, stop the violence or face military intervention. The issue was brought before the United Nations and furiously debated. But nothing came from these discussions. Russia and China, both members of the Security Council, vetoed military action against Serbia. By early March 1999, it was becoming clear that the situation in Kosovo would not be resolved peacefully. Nearly a month had passed, both sides were fighting in Kosovo, and Yugoslavia had still not agreed to the proposals from Rambouillet. On March 23, 1999, NATO made the controversial decision to authorize airstrikes against Yugoslavia. This decision was controversial because, unlike in Bosnia, the United Nations did not authorize military action. The United States was adamant this remained a primarily aerial campaign. Bill Clinton ruled out any suggestion of sending in ground troops. Besides, the Republican-controlled Congress would never approve it. The U.S. was confident in its ability to wage war by air. After all, it had dismantled Saddam Hussein's war machine earlier in the decade, mostly through airstrikes. And it had brought the Bosnian Serbs to their knees using airstrikes just a few years earlier. The bombing campaign began on March 24, 1999, and immediately ran into problems. As it turns out, waging an air war in the Balkans was rather challenging. The weather conditions, the mountains, and the wooded terrain made things much more difficult than the open deserts of Iraq. On April 14th, NATO accidentally attacked a Kosovo refugee convoy, killing 50 Kosovo civilians. NATO acknowledged the mistake, stating its warplanes thought it was a Serbian military convoy. NATO also blamed Serbia for putting the refugees in that position in the first place. About a month later, poor intelligence led to another deadly blunder. An American B-2 stealth bomber attacked the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, killing three Chinese nationals. NATO blamed the attack on outdated maps provided by the CIA. The CIA admitted they were not aware the embassy had changed addresses three years earlier. However, this had been common knowledge in Belgrade. China was furious about the attack, especially since it had been against the campaign from the beginning. 
This led to accusations that the attack on the embassy was retaliation for opposing NATO. After two months of heavy airstrikes, NATO's attitude began to change. NATO had destroyed as much as they could without inflicting severe civilian casualties on Yugoslavia. But they had not dislodged the Yugoslav military from Kosovo. Several NATO members declared it was time to send in ground troops. Chief among these was British Prime Minister Tony Blair. Tony Blair believed the West had a duty to prevent humanitarian disasters across the globe. Four years later, this same ideology would convince him to join the U.S. coalition in an invasion of Iraq. Tony Blair pressured Bill Clinton to commit to using ground forces. Initially, Clinton refused to budge. He knew the United States would have to provide the bulk of any troops involved in a ground assault on Yugoslavia. But eventually, Clinton softened his stance. He agreed to use the threat of ground forces, though he did not agree to actually use ground forces. That was enough. NATO intelligence began working with the KLA in preparation for a ground invasion. In late May 1999, NATO and American officials began openly discussing options for a ground invasion. President Clinton continued to confirm his belief that NATO's objectives could be achieved through air power alone. But he also let it be known a ground invasion was a possibility. Milosevic had held out hope that Russia would intervene to protect Yugoslavia. But that was not going to happen. In fact, Russia and China urged him to accept NATO's demands and end this bombing campaign. They were also concerned about what might happen if NATO did indeed send in ground troops. Slobodan Milosevic finally cracked. On June 1st, the Yugoslav government announced it was ready to accept NATO's terms. A week later, the United Nations had a draft resolution on the peace agreement which the members of NATO and Russia signed. The war officially ended on June 11, 1999. It lasted 78 days and resulted in around 2,000 Serbian deaths. Less than five NATO troops died during the campaign, but none of them were killed in combat. Macedonia A year and a half later, the Kosovo conflict spilled over into Macedonia. Macedonia, which is now known as North Macedonia, lies along Kosovo's southern border and has an Albanian population of about 23%. Generally speaking, there has always been good relations between the Albanian and the Macedonian populations. However, protests and rioting broke out when Macedonia's highest court banned the Albanian flag and the Albanian language. In February 2001, thousands of former KLA militants crossed the border and engaged in firefights with the Macedonian military. These militants joined up with Albanian rebels in Macedonia and formed a new militant group called the Albanian National Liberation Army. NATO acted quickly this time, pushing for a resolution before things got out of control. By August 2001, a ceasefire and peace agreement was ready. Macedonia simply modified its constitution to protect Albanian civil rights. 
Final Outcome UN troops took over security matters in Kosovo, which would remain under its protection until 2008. During this nine-year period, Kosovo was treated like a sovereign nation. The word Yugoslavia was finally put to rest in 2003. Serbia and Montenegro, the only two countries in the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, became the State Union of Serbia and Montenegro. Three years later, in 2006, Montenegro left the Union and became an independent nation. By this time, the other former Yugoslav republics had either joined the EU or were in the process of doing so. Kosovo declared independence in 2008 despite Serbia's condemnations and refusal to recognize it. Since then, over 100 nations have recognized Kosovo's independence, including the United States, the United Kingdom, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and Turkey. However, Russia, China, and India do not. Even though Kosovo has joined several international organizations, it has not been admitted to the United Nations. After the Kosovo War, NATO took on a much larger role on the world stage. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization was originally conceived to protect the West from the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union fell in 1991, NATO seemed to have lost its reason for existence. But the Balkan Wars gave NATO a renewed sense of purpose. NATO was no longer just a mutual defensive pact, it was a global military that could enforce the UN's responsibility to protect. NATO's purpose continues to evolve. In 2011, NATO used its might not only to protect civilians, but also to change regimes in Libya. To learn more about this story, Listen to Season 6, Episode 13. Slobodan Milosevic, Part 3 In September 2000, Slobodan Milosevic lost a close election to the opposition. He disputed the election results for a couple of weeks, desperately trying to cling to power. But he finally agreed to step down on October 7, 2000. In late March 2001, Serbian police raided Milosevic's villa in Belgrade. There was a brief standoff, but the former president of Serbia was eventually taken into custody on corruption charges. Milosevic only agreed to surrender if the government promised not to turn him over to international authorities for war crimes. However, as soon as he was in custody, the UN and the U.S., demanded Milosevic be turned over to The Hague to stand trial. On February 12, 2002, Slobodan Milosevic's trial began at The Hague. He was charged with 66 counts of genocide and war crimes in Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo. The trial was expected to last about two years, but instead took four years. And the only reason it ended in four years was because the defendant died. Slobodan Milosevic was found dead in his cell on March 11, 2006, apparently from a heart attack. This concludes the main storyline for this series on the Bosnian War. In the next and final episode for this season, we will provide some closing thoughts on this conflict.
You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. The Islamic Vibes Podcast is a weekly podcast brought to you by Islamic activist and history enthusiast Majid Hussein, aka at Muslim Podcaster. His What's Happening Muslims show is an unscripted and casual chat with fellow brothers about the current issues which every Muslim needs to know. While his Just Thinking show is a thought-providing discussion with esteemed and expert guests on specific Islamic topics. Brother Majid interviewed me on episode 19 of the Islamic Vibes podcast and I highly encourage you to go listen to it. The Islamic Vibes Podcast, keeping those vibes Islamic. The thing is that um, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, remember, he's now the governor of both Kufa and Basra. So this first speech that he delivers is going to be in Kufa, but he's going to then travel to Basra. And we'll get to that in a moment. He's going to then travel to Basra and give a similar speech. And hence, I believe, and many scholars of of uh, this period of time believe that the the words of these two speeches kind of got mixed up in, in the in the centuries that came since then. But anyway, let's take a let's read one of the variations of Hajjaj's famous speech in Kufa. By God, O people of Iraq, I cannot be squeezed like a fig or abashed by rattling old water skins at me. I have been proven to be at the height of my vigor and have run the longest races. Amir al-Mu'minin, Abdul Malik, has emptied out his quiver and tested the wood of his arrows. He found me the strongest and least likely to break, and thus aimed me at you. Long have you pursued a course of faction and followed the path of waywardness. But now, by God, I will bark you as one does a tree, hack you as one does a mimosa, and beat you as one does a camel not of the herd at the watering hole. By God, I do not make promises without fulfilling them, and I do not measure without cutting. I will see no more of these gatherings with, It was said, and he said, and what does he say? What does all this have to do with you? By God, you will stay on the straight path of the right, or else 
I will leave every man of you preoccupied with the state of his body. If I find any man from Al-Muhallab's expedition still here after three days, I will spill his blood and seize his property. So with that, you get an idea of the kind of person Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was. And as we'll see, he was not bluffing. We're going to get into some of these instances in just a moment. But you can also see that from this speech, this variation of his speech, at least, that we have with us today, that he ordered the men who had deserted Muhalab to get back into the field within three days, or he was going to kill them and then take their property. So not only ruin them in this life, but also ruin their progeny by ruining their children and their families by taking their property. So Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was serious. So he then, after giving this speech, he then ordered the city officials of Kufa to gather all the men, to gather them, not all the men, to gather men and to find men from the military roles to join Muhalab in his fight against the Khawarij. By this, I mean that the, the Umayyad government and all the city governments at this time, they had a listing of all the men who were, who were eligible for fighting. And so the military commanders or the city officials, I should say, they will go and randomly choose men for whatever reason. They have many reasons for doing so, but they would choose men from amongst the population to come and join the fight. And when your name was called, you had to join unless you had a good excuse. In this instance, um, Hajjaj was not taking any excuses. You had to join. We're going to see some of that in just a moment. So those men who were chosen to join in on the fight against the Khawarij, just like those who had abandoned Muhalab and ran back to Kufa, these new recruits also had three days to join Muhalab. So many of the people within Kufa were naturally upset about this. And a few days later, about two days after this famous speech, someone in the Kufa marketplace began shouting, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, basically making the takbir. And just like it is today, Allahu Akbar back then, it is meant to inspire warriors. It is often meant to inspire warriors. Of course, it's also, we, give, we, we may shout Allahu Akbar or give the takbir for many different reasons. But every Muslim who's listening to this, or most of us at least, we know that Allahu Akbar is often shouted as, as a precursor to warfare or fighting. I've seen many videos online of Muslims fighting each other. For instance, there's a video that I've seen where um, the Saudis and the Houthis were fighting each other. And I think it was the Houthis who were launching artillery. They were shooting artillery. And artillery, you know, is a modern artillery. You, you pull a cord and it springs back and it shoots a shell miles away. Every time they pulled the cord to shoot that shell, they would yell out, Allahu Akbar. They shoot the shell, Allahu Akbar, so forth and so on. So just like back then, Allahu Akbar, I'm sorry, just like now, Allahu Akbar is meant to inspire 